0: Hey, fam, welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. I'm your host, Eric The point of the Myths That Make Us podcast is to help you, the listener, and the guest, when they come on, identify the conscious and unconscious stories that they tell themselves about who they are and about what the world is. Because I think that, no, I believe that I know that the story that you tell yourself drastically Affects the life that you experience. And so I want to help people become conscious of what that story is. Hey, fam, welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by my journaling course. Uh, it's a 30 day course to help you make journaling a motherfucking habit. Um, journaling is something that I do every morning. I actually didn't journal for the first time in the last two and a half months yesterday and ended up having one of the most fucking frustrating mornings that I've had in a long time and it ended up in me having to talk to myself out loud for about three minutes to just get my shit back into alignment. But I truly believe that journaling is one of the most important things that we can do if we want to take conscious control of how we tell the story of our lives to ourselves. And um, I've gotten really good feedback on the course. And so if you're interested in making it a habit, I'd recommend that you go check that out at ericgotzi.com. Today's podcast is with Alex Nelson. Um, He is one of the members in the Fit for Service Mastermind that I'm a coach for. And he's one of the people that I resonate the most with within the group because I see a lot of me in him. Uh, He is someone who is very interested in deconstructing the stories that he has told himself that has led to the life that he had, which included leading him to um, attempts of suicide, uh, deep bouts of depression, and he shares his huge transformational moment on this podcast. It's incredible. He's an incredible human, and I know it's going to inspire you guys, so... I hope you enjoy, and as always, thank you for your attention and your love. I fucking truly, truly appreciate it. I love you guys. Namaste. Alex, thank you for coming on the podcast. I actually just got off of a Zoom call that you did for the Fit for Service Mastermind that I'm a coach for, and I got to be a student to you teaching. And what you did was pretty fucking dope. And that's honestly, that doesn't give it credit. But what you did is you took the 12 stages of alchemy and mapped it onto the 12 stages of the hero's journey and found that it's almost a perfect one-to-one match. And we are going to get into that for sure. Mm -hmm. But there are a couple of questions that I like to ask at the beginning of the podcast to kind of anchor everyone listening so they can properly project their own parts of themselves onto you because they have no idea who you are mm-hmm. so to get started let's say that i met you right after you just did something that put you into a flow state and i asked you who are you what do you do what would you say it's a great question so first of all thank
1: you for having me on eric i super appreciate it and appreciate all of your mentorship over the past year and a half if you met me right after i had dug deep into a flow state, I would say that what I do at a fundamental level is I try to find new ways to allow myself to think more clearly and become more aware of my inner stories, and then my fundamental purpose is to then communicate out those fundamental stories that I find within myself.
0: What would your best friend say who you are and what it is that you do? Mm, that's a great question.
1: <laughs> Besides, man, that guy's an asshole, but he's really funny. They might say <laughs> uh they might say that what I do is I help people get from point A to point three that they didn't even understand was a fucking option. <laughs> And then I help them get back to the point B that they
0: thought they wanted, but is actually something different than what they wanted. I love that description. I've never heard it put that way. How would your romantic partner describe who you are and what you do? Hmm. It's a really
1: good question. I would say that she would describe who I am as someone that cares deeply. And someone who, through all the permutations of different things that I do, is aiming at helping others wake up
0: and rise above their stories. How would your mom describe you and what you do? (laughs) I think she'd go, you run a podcast, right, honey? (laughs) (laughs) and how would your dad describe you and what you do probably in a similar vein i think i think he might take he might need
1: to engineer more of a story than that for himself to go yeah well you're coaching and helping people but probably a similar level of like he's
0: doing something with that there internet <laughs> how would your god describe who you are and what you mm-hmm. My God would describe me
1: as the summoner. This is actually something I've thought about a little bit, so I I have a a hopefully good answer on this. My God would describe... No pressure. Yeah, no pressure at all. My God would describe me as the summoner. And by that, I mean, I am the person who creates circumstances and structures in my life to allow myself to summon forth the God that I believe is within us all, but within me. And then to serve that outward. What is your first memory? It's a funny one. I was probably I was five, I think. Maybe even four. I looked at my mom. It was my birthday. I looked at my mom. I go, is this cake mine? She goes, Yeah, it is. I go, really it's mine she's like yeah it's your birthday honey like of course it's yours and then i smashed my entire face into the cake (laughs) ruining the cake for everyone else that was at the birthday party (laughs) and then just looked at her and they have this funny picture of me with cake all over my face so that's the first thing i like
0: vividly remember that's not just like emotion yeah What's hilarious, and it's because I know a little bit of your backstory, but I really feel that the first memory we have kind of sets the tone of our ordinary world that we have to overcome. And I know that for you, addiction was a, like, was, and we'll get into that story, but it's almost like, this is my life. And then the emotional reaction to it is, I'm going to shove my entire face into it and ruin
1: it. Yeah, exactly. It's funny too, because it's almost, you need, I love looking at that moment and kind of thinking about it two ways, exactly how you described as a predece- as a precursor to some of how I would later react to other stimulus, and also as one of my greater strengths, which is yep. to be disagreeable and flip the fucking table when I think it is just to do so.
0: Yep. And it is often that, in you know, and this is one of the core ideas in Jungian psychology in the cave which you most fear to look lies the greatest treasure. That, whatever the primary quote unquote shadow expression is in our life, if we overcome it, it becomes our greatest skill. But we will, we will get into all that alchemy soon. Um, what do you remember being the first story that really captured you as a child, either a movie or a book or something that your parents told you? Yeah, it was Lord of the Rings. Actually, it was The Hobbit. And
1: the first... (laughs) It's so weird. Like, The Hobbit was the first book I read. Now, by that Mm -hmm. I don't mean... Like, my parents read Cat in the Hat and stuff to me. But the first book I consciously sat down and read was The Hobbit. And it took me... Five hours to get through the first fucking page because none of the words I knew what they meant. Mm. But my mom loves reading and I think I saw her reading, I, my best guess is that I saw her reading that book perhaps more than any other book she was reading more often and that piqued my curiosity into it and once I was able to start digesting something of it, that story grabbed me in a way yeah. that is hard to describe.
0: And what I love is the symbolic interpretation of that is that for most of us, the symbol that our psyche will use in dreams to represent our soul, uh, specifically if we're male, and there are technical reasons for this Mm -hmm. that we can dive into, but is the relationship with the mother Mm -hmm. and that as a child, you watching the mother literally guide you to the story that would then go on to guide (laughs) the rest of your life. Yeah, no doubt. So this is my favorite question to ask. And it's that if you were, let's say that you're a father and that you have a child and it's and they're a curious 10 year old mm-hmm. and they're asking you for a bedtime story and you're gonna tell them your version of the Hobbit that's gonna span three to four minutes, mm-hmm. how would you tell it? And can you tell it to us as if we were the curious 10 year old? And the caveat I want to put there is, I'm not asking for you to recite it from memory. Right masking for you to feel into the experience of being at the edge of the bed with your child Mm -hmm. and you're just gonna tell it from your heart to them in four to five minutes perfect okay well son today I'm going to tell you a story about the
1: bravest pig that ever lived and this story is a story that changed me in a lot of ways so once upon a time there was a pig and this pig was living at home and he was just enjoying. He, he'd eat from his trough every day and he'd just be just downing food and he just he's living his life and he's loving it and the sun feels good on his skin and all the other pigs are there with him. And he's living his life around all of his friends. but he had he had a little sense inside of him that perhaps perhaps there was more than just feeding himself on slop every single day so one day the pig's good friend the owl comes into town and says to mr pig says mr pig wow you you are just living the life every day you're you're just existing and you're eating and you're you're just loving your friends but have you ever thought about exploring out into the world mr pig says well mr owl i i've never really thought about the outside world much. I know there's a lot of scary things out there. Mr. Owl says, Yes, Mr. Pig, there are scary things out there. But also out in the world is where you can find the greatest treasures. Mr. Pig says, Well, okay, that's interesting. Mr. Owl leaves, Mr. Pig thinks about that. He can't get the thought out of his head that there could be greater treasures. If the things that he was experiencing were so good, what could be out in the world? One day, Mr. Owl comes back and says, Mr. Pig, I'd like to bring you on an adventure. Mr. Pig says, okay, Mr. Owl, I think I can do it. So they go off together and they go out into the world and they, they find a deep cave underneath a mountain. And Mr. Pig gets lost in this cave. And in this cave, he's looking, but he can't see and it's too dark and he's not comfortable and he's not feeling well, he hasn't eaten, and there's no sun on his skin. And in the deepest part of the cave, he finds a mirror. And in that mirror, he looks in and he sees himself for the first time. And as he sees himself, he notices that he's gotten very skinny (laughs) and he thought he had been eating so well. He emerges from the cave and he escapes and he finds mr owl again and mr owl says mr pig where were you what'd you find in the cave and he goes i found a mirror and in that mirror i saw myself for the first time and i saw that i was skinnier than i thought mr owl who was wise said to mr pig you thought you had been nourishing yourself on food for all of your life but you had been not eating anything of real substance. Mr. Pig said, you must be right, Mr. Owl. Otherwise, how could I be so skinny? So then Mr. Pig went off into the world and he adventured far and wide. He found many treasures, but more than treasures. He found food that truly nourished him and filled him up. And when he returned back home to pig town, all the other pigs remarked, Mr. Pig, you've gotten gotten so large. And Mr. Pig said, yes, I've found the things that truly feed me.
0: The end. What I love about that is I think you might be the first person to actually try to convey one of these myths into a story for a child's psyche. <laughs> so I just want to say, crushed it. Thank you. And what I find is that the way that we retell this story we cannot help but tell our story Mm. and I know your background and so I'd like to invite you to what was your Mr. Pig story in the sense that what was your ordinary life where you thought you were feeding yourself but really you were starving your soul what brought you to the mirror and then what did you find to be the real sustenance
1: Mm. beautiful so I think when I was 15 or 16, I started, I started drinking a drink for the first time. I went to a party and I discovered how fun it is, which fair enough, drinking's super fucking fun. I think most people enjoy it, at least in the time that you're doing it. And I noticed that a lot of the sort of voices in my head that were telling me, don't be honest, don't be, don't be yourself fully those voices would go away when I would drink. And I was able to really fully express who I am and just be charismatic and charming. So from the time I was 16 through the begin the end of the year I was 20 and the beginning of the year where I was 21, I, I was drinking a ton. I knew where all the good parties were. I had completely constructed my ego around being good at meeting women and being seductive and how can I know where all the best places to be are and ooh, can I get into that exclusive club without having to pay a cover and all these things were stories I had built myself around and I had a moment where I lost a job when I was freshly 21 essentially and I I lost a job that was really like for someone who didn't go to college, I was managing an off-site location of a of a manufacturing company and like overseeing ten employees and just like doing very well for myself. But I was drinking so often; I was drinking four nights a week to blackout all the time. I lost that job because I was missing days. I I wouldn't show up, and and you know, I was probably missing at least a day every other week. But realistically, probably like a day a week, which is just doesn't fly for very long, and it was the first like slight wake up call, but I lost that job. And the only positive reference point of something that I had really built that was healthy went away with it. So I kind of spiraled deeper and I started drinking even more and I, I was just really not taking care of myself. And I got to a point where I was out one night with some of my friends and I, I went to a bar and they wanted to go home early and I was like, okay, that's great. Let's, I'm staying out. I haven't even talked to any. I haven't talked to any women yet. How am I going to go home this early? And they, they're like, okay, well, all right, see you later. We'll, we're going to leave. And I was like, cool, I can get myself home. No big deal. And as I'm at this bar, I had two, maybe three drinks, and then nothing. I black out. And I'll give the short version of the story for the people listening. But I, I come to, and I. A guy is like trying to pull my pants down. I'm in a room I don't recognize. I'm in a place I absolutely don't recognize. And as I sort of just like groggily, like shake my head, like kind of that reaction at first was, is this a dream? And I come to and this guy was trying to get my pants off. He had them about halfway down around my legs. And like, I kind of push him off of me. I'm 6'3", and he was, I don't know, 5'4" let's say five, five. And I kind of just like my legs felt like jelly and I, I get out of there. And in retrospect, I had been roofied and it was a real wake up call for me. Cause I had, I had constructed so much of my ego around feeling powerful and feeling like the things I were doing were so important. I'm you know, getting women like that's to the outside metric. If you're the guy that gets all the girls, you're, you're fucking, you're killing it. Everyone will tell you, I wish I had your life. But if you don't wish you had your life, then you don't know, you don't know where to turn next. And this was a wake up call for me because it really caused me to go, oh fuck. All right. I thought I am so strong and so important, and so powerful, and this can still happen to me. So what else can happen to me that I've never considered? So that led me down a long path of listening to a ton of podcasts. And as I started to listen to more and more podcasts, I started to let a glimmer of hope in that perhaps I was someone who was salvageable, that I was someone who was worth saving. And it kind of led me to psilocybin mushrooms, which have been a huge teacher in my life. But the first couple of times I did them, I went through sort of a transformation from, I mean, literally over the course of six months, I did four separate ceremonies. And over the course of those six months, I went from drinking three to four nights a week to drinking not a single drop of alcohol for an entire year. And really not only transcending my relationship with alcohol, but also transcending the story behind it that had caused me to have that addiction in the first place and to kind of catapult me forward into the future
0: so there's a couple of questions that come up the first one which i feel is the groundwork for the question i really want to ask is what do you remember being the first thing that you felt captured to become like for me when i was a child it was a comedian and in hindsight it was because i wanted people's attention and then once puberty hit, it was to be a professional basketball player. And really the reason for that is I wanted power and I wanted women. And then it was after I tore my rotator cuff and the basketball dream was kind of forced away from me. I realized I wanted to be a psychologist. What was your first, like, this is what I want to be? And what age were you when you had that realization? Mm. Okay. Aside from wanting to be a
1: Pokemon master at age, <laughs> at age 10... Um, <laughs> I think the first like real job I was aiming at or, or I thought of for myself was really not a job at all. Just like, I want to make a bunch of money. <laughs> like that was it. Yeah. And it was, it was interesting because I, I had a couple friends who were very clear on what they wanted to do. And I, I just had that guide star. So I was literally searching around for like, well, can I go to school for this? What can I go to school for? That would make sense for me to make a bunch of money. And in the end, I was like, oh, I can make more money just like getting right into the workforce and like making money right away. And it, it was sort of my first, that was my first passion, if you will. And in, in retrospect, of course, money was a proxy for feeling important and feeling like I had succeeded in a material way that was provable. After that, I think the next thing I wanted to be there's a period where I wanted to be an MMA fighter would to like yeah. a, a very similar vein of like, that'll let me show that I'm a badass. Yeah. Took a Muay Thai fight, had a couple Muay Thai fights and really, I did okay, but it, it was really clear to me. I was like, am I going to sacrifice my brain for this? And from there it kind of catapulted me into just like, well, I'll just do whatever job and I'll make the things outside of my work enjoyable. And as I did that was when I fell even further into drinking because then I wasn't even aiming at anything. I'm just aiming at like, let me fuel whatever I'm doing outside of work. And that led us, you know, down that hole and then out the other side to where I am now. And where are you now? What is it that you're doing? So I'm doing a few things. Um, Primarily I work as a coach. So I help people, As we said at the beginning, I help people go from A to two, which they didn't realize that they needed to go to, but you need to go to sometimes, and then back to the B that they thought they needed to aim at. And realistically, what I I help people do in simple terms is I help them get clear on what it is that they actually want which I think is the starting point that is so often not acknowledged by coaches is that many people have a story about what they want, that they've never, ever inspected it. And then people just jump right in and try to help them get that thing rather than going, let's take a step back. <laughs> let's figure out if what you want is actually anything you really want and then analyze that and move forward. So that's, that's the primary thing I do. I also lead retreats and help people kind of connect communally and go through sort of processes of transformation through different types of workshops we do.
0: For people listening who don't feel like they know what it is that they want to do. If you could give them the first track to start to walk down, what would you offer? Mm. That's a really good question. The
1: first track to start to walk down would be, I would say just to analyze where I'm thinking two things simultaneously, but I think I'll go with the one I thought of first, which is analyze where your pain is and ask the question why you're experiencing that pain. I think for a lot of us, we experience pain on a day in, day out, and we never, we seek only to extinguish that pain and put it out by drinking or by eating shitty food, and we never ask the question, why am I feeling that pain? Why is that thing so uncomfortable to me? And that can really be a guide star for people at the beginning.
0: Either for you right now or the person that you most recently worked with, to give someone a concrete example, what is the pain point, either for you or the person that you most recently worked with? Yeah,
1: so I'll give an easy easy example here. I had a experience where I was... So I'll give, I'll try to give the 10,000 foot view that makes sense. I had an experience where I would eat sugar all the time and I fucking love sugar and who doesn't like give the devil it's due. It's delicious. That's why people eat it. But I would eat all sugar all the time while I was at work. And when I, I would do it unconsciously, even when I had opted out of doing it consciously. So I told myself a story, I'm not going to eat sugar. I'm not doing it. I know it makes me feel like shit and I would do it anyways. I knew that that meant I was trying to fix pain and it caused me pain afterwards. So I dug into that and what I unearthed was I was really, really uncomfortable with any interaction with people in which I had to, I had to, at the time I was managing a job, a manufacturing facility. And I like, like, if I had to fire someone, I would a hundred percent go get sugar right after that. Anytime there was a chance that someone would not like me, because of how I had to interact with them, if I had to be just like really assertive and like, you can't do that ever again, I would go extinguish that pain with sugar and it kind of just dug up this, (laughs) I followed that rabbit hole down and it dug up this whole like self-worth piece that was all tangled in there of like, you need to be liked for you to be worthy. It's like, oh, interesting. That's probably the easiest example of like how you can trace some of these pain points back and find what causes them
0: what has been the biggest pain point for you during the coronavirus um quarantine dance
1: so there was one right at the beginning and it's actually been it's been really good since that um the first thing though was i had to really i had to contend with the idea that both of my parents, so like my mom works at a hospital. She's been a smoker her whole life. They're both above 60. Both of my parents are at risk in one way or another. Um, and what I dug down to is like I, I conceived of their death and was, I emotionally sort of processed through that because i was really scared of it and what i realized was at the very very bottom of that was this fear that if they die that is 100 i am forced to be an absolute adult because there's no more running to mommy and daddy ever again
0: mm. yeah once i dealt with that shit quarantine's been pretty good <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's one of the core ideas in psychoanalytic psychology and also it's, it's a quote by Jesus in the Bible. And it's that the core is you cannot become who you truly are until you kill the idea of your mother and your father and your psyche. And what that means is who they expect you to be, who they want you to be, and then who you allow to, to solve your dragons for you which tends to be mom and dad for a lot of people that then robs your ability to actually feel what it feels like to be the hero yourself.
1: Yeah, it's exactly what it is. It's that. It's it's why I love the conceptualization and the hero's journey of it being, of it being not just reward, but reward slash seize the sword. You yeah. get to that point where you go through the death experience and you have to choose to grab the sword, which is your power. It's an
0: active choice. You don't just it's not handed over. Yeah, and what's interesting is have you seen the newest version of the King Arthur myth uh by Guy Ritchie, the mm-hmm. movie? No, I haven't. Uh it's it's a very interesting movie to watch, um, just to look at it symbolically and mythologically. Uh, the movie itself isn't great but it's not terrible Mm. but one of the core motifs in that movie is whenever he seizes Excalibur in order for him to access the power that it can give him and the way that they represent that in the movie is it slows down time and he's basically able to move move at full speed and just merc everybody Mm. is whenever he touches it he in order for him to actually wield it, he has to fully relive the trauma of his parents dying. Mm. And the first four or five times that he goes to hold it, he will not keep holding it because the pain of the responsibility of the truth is too much that he puts it down. And I think that that's a really nice symbolic representation of in order to get the full power that is within us to transform who we are into who we could be, You have to take complete responsibility for your life, right? And there's a lot of people who will just not make that choice because they will have to look at all the things that they have done in their past that they know was their responsibility that has caused pain or trauma in their life, or more painfully, the people that they love. But, and it's also one of the things that I see that that comes up so much, especially in times of duress like this, where specifically young men who have so much potential and power they love to masturbate into the idea of of conspiracies Mm -hmm. and i and there for sure are conspiracies happening yeah but the amount of like libido and i mean libido in the jungian sense not the freudian sense Mm -hmm. where it's like the it's the totality of the life life force within you They want to give the responsibility of the fact that life is hard and they have to do hard things to get what they want by telling themselves the story that there is this perfectly orchestrated evil entity Mm -hmm. making it an impossible game for them to live a heroic life. And it's, it's just, it is refusing the call to seize the sword of taking full responsibility of the fact that, yeah, life is tough, but... You're tougher. Yeah. I love that I think it's in
1: man and his symbols. Jung has a has a I'm not gonna get the quote exactly right, but I'll try to summarize the gist of How it. How dare you? I know, right? Have it in front of you. Um he he said, and this I think it was about ancient civilizations, he said people's addiction to the idea of ancient civilizations is is similar or the same as the way they are addicted to their parents. In
0: that,
1: Mm, if there was something that came so far before, then there is a hope or a dissemination of responsibility to, let's call it, Sky Daddy or Ancient Pyramids Daddy or Conspiracy Daddy that is out there in the world. And when I read that, which was super recently, as I was in coronavirus and seeing all these conspiracy theories, that was the thing that rang out to me. It was like, oh,
0: it's that, (laughs) Yeah. And the really interesting thing that comes up in me when you uh, use the term daddy, because that really like humor has a great way of highlighting the truth. Mm -hmm. And it's that the positive or you could say the inflated aspect of I want daddy to protect me or I want daddy to take my responsibility from an archetypical psychological point of view is the idea of like the Christian God. Mm -hmm. And then the dark daddy, which is the daddy that makes that still takes all the responsibility from me, but in its dark aspect, is the conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. And at least what I see personally is the men that I know who are really into conspiracy theories, they have a a very specific distrust for men with power,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it very likely comes from their relationship with their fathers. Right. And it anthropomorphizes and projected out onto the culture, and I and I do feel that it's worth offering the caveat that that's an oversimplification. Mm-hmm. There are nefarious people in the world who are trying to do things to gain more power and more wealth, and that is true. But the idea that there is this perfectly omnipotent, singular, right, supernatural evil daddy that's orchestrating all of it, that where it's to me, it's like, it's so clearly to me, Mm -hmm. a psychological projection of a archetype, right. To not take full responsibility.
1: Yeah. I want to, I want to provide two things. One, just commenting on that. And one is a, a real world example of me experiencing through that. So to comment on that first, I a hundred percent agree. And I think it's, it's a it's almost a way it's a way to sh- to throw your hands up in the air and go things are going wrong because of that there and not because of x y and z and the, the question i always ask myself internally is and i've heard you ask this as well is like if so then what like if that's the case what are you the per the individual going to do about it if there's a grand conspiracy are yeah. you personally willing to commit your entire life and being to fighting that
0: conspiracy if not then what are you doing and i just want to offer a quick caveat because i think that that's mm. super important is i can feel a frustration come up in my body when people that i care about bring up these type of stories mm. and I I haven't known where it was coming from, and I've been sitting with it for the last couple of weeks, and yeah. and I've I've recognized it recently, and it's that I I can feel the hypocrisy because I can see that it is not embodied in their behavior that they believe it, mm-hmm. but they want to spend mm-hmm. hours and hours and hours trying to convince me of it, right? And it's like. I would be so much more convinced if I saw the way that you behaved is you never used your phone. Mm-hmm. You don't use 5G. You don't, you know, live on the internet. And like, it's it, it feels hypocritical because it's not embodied in the person that's trying to get me to spend dozens and dozens of hours to convince myself. And I also know that the reason why it creates this almost anger in me mm-hmm. is because I know how i need to operate in order to feel in alignment with my god and if i were to go down this rabbit hole and i were convinced it would change i would change the way i live my entire life and because i have not seen anybody who talks about it embody it it feels like a waste of time 100 so i'm going to give a a real a real world
1: context of what i've experienced that I think really was a wake-up call for me. And I'm gonna be I'm to be really careful with this because I think that it of all the things I've said, and I've only I've only said this like once on my podcast, I think out loud, it's the most potential for controversy if people misinterpret or miss words. So when I was sexually assaulted, there was a real opportunity and I embraced it for a while for me to look at that as this happened to me and I had no agency in this whatsoever, which on one level is true. I didn't choose that, I didn't invite it in. However, I think where people get lost and where I got lost for a little while with it was the moment the experience is over The responsibility falls to me as an individual to engineer a way in which it will never, ever happen again.
0: and Or at least dramatically reduce the chances of it happening again according to what you know your soul is showing you are the things that you can change. Exactly. And for me, it became such a... Like, that was...
1: I think I was able to get over large parts of that much more quickly than I otherwise would have by applying that framework. Because it's like, yes, it wasn't my fault. However, I, in that moment, was embracing things I knew I shouldn't have been embracing. And so now, going forward, can I opt out of those things? And can I choose to live my life a different way to dramatically reduce the chance that it happens? And I think why that can be controversial is it sounds like, It sounds like victim-blaming if you misunderstand pieces of it, but it's not victim-blaming. It's allowing the victim, I don't even like using the word victim, but allowing the person who was perpetrated against to reclaim their power after it happens. Because the reason people have these ruminations of it happening and can't get these things out of their head is your brain's looking for a solution. And if you're told that this shit just happens to you, then your brain is on overdrive going every time I walk out of my house. And even when I'm in my house,
0: it's always at risk. So you're fight or flight all the time. It's like you have to dispense with that. This is a huge point. And this is something that I've talked about recently. I haven't talked about it publicly. And I do recognize that it's an opportunity for controversy, but it is what I believe. And I'll try my best to articulate it Mm -hmm. well. And it's that what people don't understand when they use the term victim blaming, as a defense, as a magical spell that they believe is protecting the person who was hurt, Mm. what they don't realize that they are doing is that because of the way the psyche operates, which means if you understand the game that your psyche is trying to play to feel positive emotion in the world. If you remove the opportunity of claiming the responsibility to the degree that allows you to create new strategies about how to be that would reduce the likelihood of an event like that happening again, you literally remove the opportunity for the psyche to heal itself. Mm. And so people believe that they are protecting the one who is hurt when they use that spell that says don't victim blame. And there are people who, there 100% are people who are seized by their shadow, who will tell a story about the person who who had a trauma perpetrated upon them in a way that is wrong, and that the victim-blaming spell is attempting to protect them from that. But it's a crude spell in the sense that it also removes the psychological ingredient necessary to help the person who experienced the trauma to heal which is that they do have a responsibility in the to the degree that they can improve the way that they operate in the world that reduces the likelihood of the trauma happening again And that that is the thing, like you mentioned, that the psyche seems to need on a fundamental level. It's almost like a car needs gas. If If you've experienced a trauma, your mind needs to understand it as a causal story where you can understand what parts of it you had a responsibility in that you can change and improve now. reduce the likelihood of it happening again. Yeah. And I want to key in on one word you said there, which is
1: responsibility and help people understand like the responsibility in that situation is to yourself. It's not to others. It's not to the world at large. It's the responsibility to yourself. And even in the most, let's say the most egregious case, like my case was maybe not as egregious. Like I opted into some objectively bad decisions that led for potentiality for what happened to happen. However, there are people who literally like they're, they get, they're trying to get in their car to go to work and they get grabbed off the street and they get attacked. Yeah. In those cases, it's not a, it's not a judgment. Like you could have done anything differently in that exact moment. But what it is is like, Hey, maybe you should go, go learn martial arts. Maybe you should learn how to use a gun. Carry Mace from now on, whatever these other things are that you can then signal to your own psyche that you have taken something that happened seriously and you have thought about it deeply and you have created a solution that the psyche can then grab onto and go, okay, I can be happy with this solution because I think it reduces the chance of this happening again.
0: I think that that's a great point. And that's something that I wasn't even thinking about. And you're absolutely right that there are 100% situations where the individual could not have done anything, that they did nothing, that their soul was like, that could have reduced the chances of it previously. But that after it happening, there are things that can be changed. And I think that on one level, you know, your psyche has a model of how the world operates. And One of the toughest things and this is something that I know is true for my psyche. I have not yet directly Experienced evil from another human and so I know that my intuition is not yet fully developed about how to Confront the world because I do not have that model and very likely at some point in my life I know that that will happen and then I will have to contend with that but when The individual psyche encounters evil for the first time like a human with conscious malevolent intent to cause harm that can destroy your story of what you think the world is but what you know the hero's journey which seems to be the most healing archetypical story that we can tell ourselves about how to confront the infinity that reality actually is is to go look at what happened and then to basically allow it to transform you to be something more capable. And there's, I don't know if this is the way the world works, but it seems to be a very adaptive story. And it's, and I get it from the hero's journey. And it's this idea that everything that happens to you that's traumatizing is literally trying to bring forth a new skill in you that will be perfectly tuned to whatever the biggest obstacle in your life will be. Because the way that that's mapped out in stories is the hero doesn't even understand that when they go to Cave A and they go to Mountain B and they go to Dark Forest C, and that each of those small battles gives them like this key or this sword or this torch, that when they confront the ultimate enemy, each of those things come together perfectly to allow them to overcome whatever that thing is. And so when I go through something hard, I try to tell myself the story. This is literally my soul preparing me by teaching me a new skill that will be perfect for some future challenge that my soul knows is coming. Yeah, I love that. And you can, you can look at that. That's
1: the useful story I tell myself it's kind of to reflect on the opposite of that. Like, look, if you watched Lord of the Rings and Frodo, Gandalf walks up in the house, Frodo gets the one ring. And in that scene where they throw it in the fire in Bilbo's house, Frodo's house, it melts right there. And then the rest of the movie is just like Frodo pimping on Hobbit ladies. Then (laughs) (laughs) that would be a fucking boring movie. Yeah. That movie would suck because there's no challenge. There's no intrigue. And if your life was lived that way, your life would suck. You would be so bored out of your skull. These, your soul would be malnourished. You'd be the skinny pig. 100%. So it's that's the story I tell myself. is like the challenge arises, and it, it can fucking suck sometimes. But... <laughs> the challenge arises so that the movie of my life is this beautiful arc and the challenges that arise are equal to my ability to overcome them.
0: What do you see as your Mount Mordor that you have to throw a ring into? Like, What is the biggest thing that you see yourself spending your life trying to face? It's a difficult
1: question. I... I think there are two main things. One thing I've become aware of through all of the people I've worked with and all of the work I've done on myself is that there is a a need of agency in someone being helped. Someone who is suffering needs to opt into to the choice that things could get better for things to ever get better. And I think... If I could fix one problem in the world at the snap of my fingers, it would be to figure out a way in which you can clearly and consistently break through into someone's psyche and help them to understand that when they tell themselves the story that things can get better, that is what is the key to open the door for things to
0: get better. Actually, I don't even need Amen. To. That's the one. <laughs> I don't need to say the other one. And what's beautiful is that um, you, like, I've told you this before, but I feel like we are basically this, like, here's one way that I think about it. I think that there's maybe 20 different types of souls that have chosen 20 different types of gods to bow before. Mm. And I think that one of the gods is, how do you most effectively help the human psyche heal itself Mm. and so those are psychologists psychiatrists healers blah 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 like there are people who kneel before the god of money of power of how do you help people love how do you help people free themselves um how do we help the earth like i think that there's a core set of gods that people can bow before and that you and i bow before the same god yeah which is essentially how can we help people heal the psyche or how can we help the psyche heal itself? How can we help individuals? You know, you know what I'm saying, but I just wanted to say that I completely resonate and that I'm looking at the same star as you.
1: Yeah. hundred percent.
0: I appreciate
1: that. It's such a difficult, it's a, a difficult problem to grapple with, I think, because there's a, there are so many people waiting to be helped, but then there are even more untold multitudes of people who, who, by my current conception, couldn't be helped unless I spent my entire lifetime helping that one person, and then maybe I could get through. And obviously, like, if I helped that one person for 10 years, then that is 300 people I didn't help, so.
0: Yeah. What is the thing that you're most passionate or interested in at the moment? It's a good question. Alchemy
1: has completed a loop in my head, let's say for the moment. Um but that has really really pulled my attention in a certain way. I think I've thought this for a long time. So when I was I'll open up a little bit here about something I don't think I've talked about publicly at all. Um when I was maybe 14 or 15 I started to get really into like reading these old like occult books, like learning about first it was Aleister Crowley. I was like this dude's fucking interesting. Yep. I should learn about Thelema and learn about the religion he created and all these rituals and All this magic stuff. And I think on one level, it was serving a need in me to feel, to feel in control of things that seemed so out of control and the ritualization aspect of magic and of just all of that helped me to cope with reality because I felt like even if things are spinning out, I was able to ritualize my life and then therefore have an effect and I think that's a useful framework for anyone, but I think there are so many of these old systems and stories that, and alchemy is certainly one of them, that are just disregarded as, well, yeah, that's just black magic mumbo jumbo that people, when humans are barely even fucking humans, they were just like apes with, apes with houses. They, they were using these things but when you start to understand these are rather <laughs> oh man the the image that washes over me is that these were f- some of the first sprouts coming above the ground after a big rain and these are some of the first pieces and systems that the human psyche and the human consciousness as it began to emerge constructed these ideas and i think as you understand these ideas you understand yourself on such a deeper level than without using them
0: yeah the thing that comes up is that those are the first plants or the first sproutings after the long reign of how the psyche can heal itself in the context of culture You know because i think that before culture there was an intuitive connection to allow the psyche to do what the psyche does Mm -hmm. but once you create culture culture seems to be an amplification of the rational part of the mind Mm -hmm. which is the part of the mind that's incredibly powerful and helps us transform the physical world but it's also the thing that most inhibits the connection to the unconscious yeah and it seems to be that these first systems like alchemy and a lot of these magical systems were the first yawnings of the psyche trying to find an integrated state with culture yeah 100
1: i think it's important too as you as you look at these old systems you just don't it doesn't mean you have to take everything for granted like i believe this is all true but as you interact with some of them you can find the pieces that are true enough to be useful to you
0: and that yeah and the way that so i see useful. it is they're ores you know like they're precious metals and like one thing like i forget where i heard this quote but it's an artist takes the wisdom from previous generations and just remakes it for their culture or for their zeitgeist for their time and i feel like the call of anyone who feels that they are a healer of anything psychological and a lot of things biological that These are the ores that we've inherited from previous generations of people trying their best to basically articulate what is the most healing way to orient to the psyche in the modern world. And, you know, if you're a healer, I think the call is these systems have some precious metals for you to put into your forge. Absolutely. What is a question that is on your mind right now that you haven't answered? Hmm. I think,
1: and you might you might resonate with this question or you may even have some good answers for me. I think the question that I'm grappling with right now is, are these super admittedly esoterically nerdy things that I'm interested in palatable? but more importantly than palatable monetizable in a meaningful way in that i can find better ways to get paid to grapple with them that's probably the biggest question on my
0: mind and for you specifically what would be a better way like cuz you're you're being paid on one level to coach people now but what do you see as a practical example of a better way yeah so i think i think it
1: it's a couple things i'm I'm aware that as i get paid to coach people it it lights me up to change the world and then on a certain level i'm also aware that there is deep digging to be done that can only be done when i spend an extreme amount of time on it and as i do that what is the way to make that worth it cuz i think they both they can't necessarily both exist at the same time like there's a certain amount of focus yep. and obsession that comes with unearthing something that can shift things that's not just a complete like taking what someone else said and going like let me apply this it's like if you want to unearth something great you have to allow an obsession in but then how do you make that obsession sustainable in some sort of way
0: and I've been grappling with this and I'll offer you what my current hypothesis is that I'm running Mm. and it's that coaching one-on-one or with small groups is the laboratory where you can experiment. Mm. And then after you've experimented enough where you've extracted out at least one core thing that you see works for almost everyone, you take the time to put that into a course. Mm. You make that an online course that can scale. And then once you have that foundational course, you can then offer a group coaching experience where it's it's like one coaching experience for you, but you can work with 10 or 20 Mm -hmm. people. And then once you've laid that foundation, at least for me, and I can already see that you have this, you podcast the entire time to grow an audience. And then once you've tested it in a course, and maybe you make one or two or three courses, and by the time you have two or three, that's enough to free you up significantly and you can have a couple of one-on-one clients to continue to hone the laboratory. But then as the podcast grows and the course shows that you know what you're talking about and that it works, then that opens up the opportunity for a book Yeah, and a book scales. And then once you have that first book out and you have the courses, that system can keep feeding and it can keep growing. Mm. Because the thing that I'm most The thing that I'm trying to protect my entire life is my ability to use three to four hours of uninterrupted time every day to go deep into studying and alchemizing these things personally. And then I I do almost no one-on-one coaching. um, And I'm trying to make these courses for these foundational skills that I've seen work in people's lives. And that's how I see it, is it's basically small coaching as a laboratory courses as a proof of concept and then podcasting and books because those scale and then just ritually and spiritually guarding those three to four hours every day. Because what it seems to be is what researchers show is like the human brain can only be in deep flow state for about four hours a day. Mm. If you get over that, you're probably getting into mania and that you will have a come down that will, that will be the price that you pay for exceeding that daily allotted energetic payment. And I do have times like that where I get manic and I might go a week where the flow state's actually like six to eight hours, but then yeah. I have the come down and then you have to use the tools that you have to wave through the come down. Yeah. But that's basically where I'm at on that. I think I'm going to pay the price tomorrow on my, <laughs> my come <laughs> oh, down from my workshop. <laughs> same, same actually is uh launched two courses this week and then did my workshop that I've been preparing for. And I can feel that, um, I really, I felt it today. Like I, and I felt it yesterday too, but I know I'm really going to feel it for a day or two afterwards. What is the next big thing that you're most excited to do? Gosh, that's,
1: (laughs) if I have a fault, which I have many, So, of course, I have faults. One of my biggest faults... What? (laughs) You, too? Oh, fuck. I thought it was just (laughs) me. Um, One of my biggest faults is that I... One of my biggest faults and also one of my biggest strengths is that I focus so wholly with the entire intensity of my being on the only thing in front of me in that moment. That sometimes, in a moment like this, where I've just finished something that felt like i was birthing i find myself with a couple days of kind of floundering of like what's the next thing i'm focusing on again what am i supposed to be working on Uh, but you know logically i know that the next things i'm working on is i've got a course to finish up and push out i just released one and i've got another one that needs to be released i know that's the next logical step but right now that's not like it's not it's not possessing my spirit in the same way the thing I just did is. So it's, we'll see where it leads me. But that's that's the current thing, calling
0: my name. So the question that i like to end on is, let's say that you are at the last day of your life and that you know that you will die peacefully in your sleep at the end of the day. And you've accomplished everything that you've wanted to do in this life. How would you spend that last day and who would you want to spend it with? Hmm. I would spend
1: that last day. Number one, I plan to be old as fuck. But let's let's take that out of the equation, so I can be mobile. <laughs> Actually, by then we'll probably have good medicine to help help me uh, be mobile at the same time as being ninety five years old. So I would be with my family and I would I would be drinking in the feeling and the culmination that God, do I don't know if I know how to put this into words I would be spending every moment I could, in the presence of those I loved, knowing that I was always home with them the entirety of my life and knowing that I always will be home with them the entirety of whatever happens after.
0: And if you could leave a single message on a piece of paper for your family, what would you write?
1: i hmm. so torn. What I just said would certainly be something I would want to write, but then also the tactical part of my brain would want to write something that's like not a fucking roomy poem. <laughs> it's like <laughs> tactically understandable to my potential grandchildren. So I think what I would write is seek the things that call out to you, that obsess you, that take all your waking hours and find the ways that you can bring them into your life and find the ways in which you can turn those into what you do. And that would be simply with the understanding that hopefully the children I had raised and their children had some propensity to
0: not be terrible addicts through being raised well. (laughs) Alex, thank you so much for coming on. Um, Where can people find your work? Yeah, so thank you for having me on, brother. I appreciate it. Um, You can find me,
1: my coaching, and I have one program out right now, which is called Vivid Visualizations. You can find all of that on www.throughtheveil.co. And you can also find my podcast on wherever you find podcasts. It's called Through the Veil with Alex Nelson. And Instagram, of course, at alexander diesel which people always ask is that because you think your diesel is fuck no it's not it used to be my favorite jeans brand so i made an instagram handle after it so there <laughs> we are <laughs>
0: those are the best places thank you again i love the work that you're doing in the world and i know that you're gonna get that last day the way that you want it
1: thanks brother i appreciate you